Welcome to the Sourcing Hero podcast produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Chris Tsai. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of ResolvePay, a company that helps B2B businesses grow by streamlining net terms invoicing, credit, and payments. Especially in today's economy, all companies want greater financial velocity, and so Chris and his team have focused on making that possible through automation. So hello, Chris. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Great to be with you. So I shared a little bit, a very little bit, I should say, in my intro about where you focus and and what you do. But for people that have not already met you, what else is it good for them to know about your professional journey? Yeah, so it's fun to talk about the way that Resolve started and uh, our connection with uh, this larger publicly traded company, Affirm. We got to know Max, the CEO at a firm, uh, because he was an angel investor in my last business, uh, this pre-order payments company called Celery. And uh, those of you who know a firm, they're a buy now, pay later company that Mm. supports purchasing uh, for consumers over time. And we had a number of sellers on that payments platform uh, that were looking to grow. And this is back in 2012 and 13, the buy now, pay later concept was a brand new thing. Uh, it wasn't at all clear it would become what it is today. So a firm at that time was looking to partner with uh, platforms like ours to prove that individuals in this case would actually use a thing like a loan and a checkout to be able to afford things in an e-commerce environment. So we ended up at as a business being the first to partner with a firm to allow a firm to be a payment method in that checkout. And we ended up giving a firm their first couple dozen merchants. And we ended up watching this whole buy now, pay later revolution unfold before our eyes. It was incredible. And in the same uh, process of doing so, we were able to see many of these consumer facing merchants that had a B2B or wholesale or commercial business say, hey, look, this is amazing for our consumer business. Our revenue is growing by leaps and bounds because of this tool. What about a B2B version for buy now, pay later? Why, why isn't there an affirm for B2B? And that ended up being the initial insight that ended up allowing us to think about this concept for Resolve. We after we sold our business um, in this intervening period, we raised this insight to Max, the CEO at Affirm. He said, oh, that's an incredible uh, idea. In fact, we get pinged about this all the time ourselves, but we can't and we won't do it for a number of reasons. But it would be a great uh, sister or spin-out company. Why don't we return you the favor of whatever you know number of customers you gave us in the early days? And we can give you roughly the same number to help you guys get going. And so we really focused in on, as we spent time with these referred merchants from 
a firm on the B2B side thinking about the invoice pain around the fact that many times, and it's very true within, I think, all B2B purchasing, mm -hmm. if you're uh, iss issuing an invoice to a, a buyer, a business in this case, and you're having to wait 30, 60, or 90 days for that to get paid, you're acting a bit like a bank to your own customers, which mm -hmm. is really not ideal. And you're having to act as this payment facilitator or process manager around the whole net terms payment process. So anyway, that's what Resolve does and, and, and how we came to be is uh, we spun out of this much larger sister company, a firm uh, focusing on a lot of the same kinds of pain points, but for this business supply chain and invoicing context. I always love that moment in someone's entrepreneurial story where either they ask or someone turns to them and asks, why isn't there a dot, dot, dot? Right. To me, that's exactly. that's such an interesting moment. And I'm sure, you know, it wasn't like the lights dimmed and music softly ro rose up from the background. It's not like you have any sense that moment's coming. Um, but I, I think it's something unique about a natural entrepreneur's ear that hears that and holds on to it. Right. And then at that point, you just don't let it go until you've either determined that there's not an opportunity or you have found a way to profitably solve it. Um, so I, I appreciate you you sharing that backstory because we are going to be talking about, I guess, bigger picture payments, but more specifically cash flows, something that's not only on everybody's mind, but is also in nearly every business story in the news right now, especially for inventory-based businesses. So can you give my listeners sort of a high-level overview of how cash flow management works for some of these inventory-based businesses. Yeah, and, and I'll focus the, the thoughts on where we see the most acute pain from our perspective, which is Perfect. in this concept of net terms, right? It's, it's a pretty universal idea to offer net 30 or longer, in many cases, up to net 90, or we've often seen net 180, right? So the, wow. the, the simple point is uh, you're selling an item, right? If you're, especially if you're selling a pallet of goods, let's say LED light bulbs, we have a number of folks that sell those. Uh, and if you're a manufacturer of LED light bulbs and you're needing to get paid uh, in order to manufacture those in wherever your manufacturing base is, but you're, you're waiting 30, 60, up to that 180 days to get paid, that obviously creates uh, this cash flow pressure um, or this cash flow delay. And for many manufacturers and wholesalers and distributors that have this payment mechanism with their buyers, uh, you have to manage aggressively the timing, the spikes in that cash flow, the fact that your working capital is tied up, uh, and your ability to take on long term projects or to grow is significantly determined by your ability to manage that uh, payment cycle between you and your customers. So we found it's very, very important to not only manage that, but have a very seamless process by which you're providing that experience so that you can actually take control of the cash curve, so to speak. That's that's a really important concept that we talk about our our customers with daily. Yeah. And you know, where we've talked about both consumer facing, but then also B2B companies. Obviously, as most of this listening audience knows, those are not exclusive supply chains, right? Many supply chains are B2B for a long part of the journey, and then at some point, they switch over and become B2C, whether they're e-commerce or, or bricks and mortar. And that 
financial supply chain, let's say all nodes on that chain are not necessarily created equal. So the margins are different. The cash situation is different. What challenges might exist for a retailer that doesn't necessarily affect distributors, wholesalers, manufacturers in the exact same way? What are some of the variances along that journey? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so one one particularly interesting uh, manufacturer slash brand that sells both to consumers and to businesses comes to mind. There's a there's a bike brand called Turn Bikes, T E R N Bikes, uh, and what they they sell to a number of retail chains that hold these bikes in inventory and sell on their showroom floors. Um, and, and many of these are electric bikes or e-bikes. And so these retailers that have these bikes from turn, they want to buy multiple bikes or SKUs at a time, but you can imagine the value of these bikes is quite high. I'm um, sure. So they can't, they can't necessarily, if they want to say, for example, have 10 bikes from turn that quickly gets into the tens, if not hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars. So turn bikes has to, for in this instance, offer a credit limit to these retailers so that these retailers can buy the bikes, put them in the showroom, and then sell them, ideally before they have to pay turn bikes back in that 30, 60, or 90-day period. Um, so you can imagine um, during the pandemic, pandemic especially, right, uh, retailers were getting massive demand for bikes. Yes. E-bikes in particular were really hot, uh, and, but there's not enough inventory to go around. So the manufacturers are trying to get these retailers to prepay for their orders, but the retailers don't have the cash. So then people are just waiting. I think you've maybe seen a bunch of articles like everyone wants bikes. No one can find bikes. <laughs> so uh, if you get in the middle of that transaction and offer this buy now, pay later, or this net 30 or net 60 transaction, um, and it, you know, in many cases, we help process these transactions, then the turn bikes folks can offset the risk of carrying that credit by working with a platform like ours. And then the retailers that are holding these bikes get the time to pay that back over time after they, in many cases, have sold off that entire bike set of inventory. And then both sides win, really. Both the the retailers are selling more bikes because they have the inventory. Turn Bikes is selling more because they can manage that cash flow more effectively. Uh, the order sizes go up, as I mentioned. In, in cases like Turn and others, you can even negotiate better uh, supplier pricing or manufacturing prices for the folks that make the component parts because now the order sizes are going up and you get discounts as a, as a result of that. So um, yeah, the entire set of nodes along that supply chain actually really get benefited by adding that buy now, pay later process and and credit into the mix. Now, given that most of my audience is in some role related to procurement, not everybody, but an awful lot of people are, uh, one of the things that we're always concerned about is finding ways to not only generate savings, but also deliver different forms of value to the company. And so we have sort of this typical model where we're accustomed to leveraging our volume or our demand so that we can negotiate better pricing in our contracts. But I think you have some interesting thoughts around how payment terms are another way that we can make cash flows more efficient um, and and generate that as another source of value to the company. So if you would talk for a minute, you know, we talked about the different lengths, the different net terms from a payment standpoint. 
Talk a little bit about how rethinking that creates an opportunity for procurement to deliver more value to the company. Mm, yeah. And, and particularly, as I maybe alluded to in the last example, right, we found that if you do the net terms portion right, if you're a, a business seller and you have a business customer, and that produces more volume or higher order values, right? And, and I can think of another example um, where if your goal is to negotiate better pricing as you're procuring inventory or raw goods or even finished goods, um, the idea is you can, so the, the example I'm also thinking of is this company called Elston Materials, this concrete supplier uh, in Chicago. And by both automating and shortening that time cycle for their customers, because they were getting paid sooner because of Resolve and then their customers were getting more time to pay, so they were buying more. They were able to improve their gross margins fairly substantially because of their ability to pay their own Elston's mm. suppliers more quickly. And so better vendor relationships definitely come as a result of that. Um, if you're tying up your cash flow and AR and not able to pay your own suppliers off, that's yeah. a problem. But in, in so doing and paying them off, you're actually improving that relationship with your own suppliers. Uh, so yeah, from a procurement strategy point of view, having that cash on hand from your customers paying you sooner through a mechanism like Resolve definitely uh, gives you an advantage when you're buying what you need for your own business. Because there is sort of a, a cash supply chain as well as there being a product supply chain. You know, I think if mm -hmm. we were to play sort of a word association game, you could stop almost anybody on the street anywhere and say to them, okay, I'm going to give you a word. You give me the first thing that pops into your mind. And if we were to say supply chain, they would say either disruption or crisis, mm. depending on <laughs> yeah, where the exactly. news cycle particularly is. And so delays, as you're pointing out, delays in that cash supply chain can be every bit as disruptive as delays in the flow of material goods and products for sale. Um, and you talked a little bit about relationships, um, but one of the issues, and, and I say this from a procurement standpoint, we have not done a great job keeping track of this. Once we get to the point of contract, we don't totally stay on top of, okay, how quickly are we paying our suppliers? Are we abiding by whatever the net terms were that we agreed to? Um, and so we can talk about the importance of supplier relationships, but we're not necessarily sort of walking the walk that goes along with that because if suppliers care about anything other than contracts and orders, it's being paid on time. Um, mm. is, is there advice that you would have for procurement about finding an easy way to either stay more involved in these interactions and relationships past the point of signing contract or simply get more visibility into how the company's cash flows are actually working and where that might pop up in conversations with suppliers. Mm, yeah, no, that's a great point. I, I, we, um, we sometimes joke about this because we, we provide a ton of visibility to both buyers and sellers in this procurement process when they've decided to, you know, send an invoice from the seller side to the buyer. Sometimes that invoice can get lost in someone's accounts payable department. Uh, is are you going to pay us on time? What's the visibility? And we, um, to borrow a, you, you're probably aware of the the friend feed from Facebook or other social yes. platforms. We almost have a uh, the invoice activity feed, right? It, it, treating that invoice as 
as its own form of cash relationship between two parties. And the ability to know when the invoice was sent, when it was received, when it's going to get paid, what actions have been taken on it from either the seller side, if they've sent some reminders, or from the buyer, if they've approved and are deciding to send it. Those details, while very mundane sounding, are absolutely critical for this visibility and relationship between oftentimes two, a buyer and a seller, these two parties that have been in business for years, but not decades. And so those activities, as silly as it sounds, are almost like a, a relationship history, at least for that transaction, if not over time. And so we, we joke about that internally, but it's really important because, you know, if something goes wrong and you need to delay that payment further because of something happening on the buyer side's uh, business, th- there needs to be visibility so that there can be a, a relationship clarity or a, a point of, you know, if not necessarily negotiation, but saying, hey, I need a little bit of extra time or an extension. So we, we provide that in addition to all the tools to make these things very efficient and automated and technology seamless, uh, managing the very real dynamics between procurement folks and the folks that are are invoicing them really, really matters to the point of relationship. So we found that technology and using some paradigms like we've seen on the consumer side in this B2B context really makes that B2B complex transaction much more simple, like a consumer transaction, and also enhances the relationship at the same time. Yeah. And and as you've touched upon, you you mentioned it there, and I think it came up in one of your comments earlier. Obviously, anytime there's uh, a business challenge that can be solved by information through you know better communications, through you know, improved process flows, we're always asking ourselves, okay, what are the automation opportunities to improve this? So I'm sure that that feed is not just simply a display of information, but that there's a fair amount of automation that goes into what you've built to make sure that this opportunity to improve these relationships and cash and material flows uh, is efficient and scalable. Um, So talk for a minute, if you would, about sort of how the automation piece specifically comes into this. Um, Is it you know, is it about systems integration and the way information is displayed to people? Is it about giving people the, you know, the opportunity to provide transparency directly to suppliers? Um, where do you see the greatest benefits associated with automation being here? Yeah, no, this is a really important point. So as I mentioned at the top, the there's one pain point, which is you don't want to have to act like a bank to your customers. And neither do you want to have to operate entire lending department, if you will, or a loan processing or collections agency, right? So for very, very large manufacturers and distributors that might have hundreds of people with the word credit in their LinkedIn profile, most of these growing and scaling manufacturers and distributors don't have that kind of resourcing. So Mm -hmm. uh, just to manage the end-to-end process of having a terms program where you're offering net 30 to more than, say, your top five customers, which we found is often the case because you're having to be very conservative. So we, we break down the automation to roughly four steps. There's the credit checking piece up front, which is just approving a new or existing buyer for a credit limit for net terms. That's a decisioning step that can, is automated. Step two is managing that, those credit limits so that your customers know they have $100,000 to spend on invoices with you. Uh, step three would be following up or in some cases in slow payments, chasing those payments. So this is automated follow-ups and calls if needed 
um, so that people are aware of when payments are due and needed to be needing to be paid. And then step four would be the reconciliation of those payments from the payment methods, whether it's credit card, ACH check, um, or wire into the accounting ledger of the seller, right? So that end-to-end process, and then on the buyer side, there's a number of automation steps as well to make sure that the payment experience on, on their side is as seamless as possible as they're paying with these credit terms. But you can see uh, the, the kind of joke is that consumer payments are like a tweet, whereas a B2B payment is more like passing a bill through Congress because there's so many steps <laughs> and approvals along the way that we have to really automate and think through all the workflow yeah. of each of these four to six steps that I just mentioned, seller and buyer included, and make sure that not only is it seamless and smooth, but that there are humans that are involved in each of these steps and that they know what to do and when so that that transaction is properly consummated. Man, I tell you what, Chris, it's those humans they will get you every single time. And it's funny as I was I was jotting down some notes while you were talking and I was thinking about the following up and the chasing. Every single piece of technology available should come with a chasing feature. Um, we mm. have a sort of a task management app, of course, that we use at, at Art of Procurement. And I've actually stopped checking off tasks. I now set them to recur because it's amazing. You can do your piece of a, of a handoff, right? Or a transaction or a reminder or something. But if the other person doesn't reciprocate, there needs to be sort of a safety net in there so that it hasn't just flown out into the ether. And then I have no further prompt to remind me to follow up. Um, and as, as simple as it sounds like to do, we all have so many things on our plates. And so having that sort of built into the automation, I don't think the value of that can be overstated. Yeah, I 100% agree. And and I would say the automation is not just the steps and technology. There's also, to the point of relationship, oftentimes these sellers or the buyers, right, they, they want the technology to fade in the background. So we have this whole concept of yes. embedding, uh, embedding each of these components that I just mentioned, the four to six steps via an API or an application programming interface so that you can do various components of those workflows under the hood or they're just in our case, powered by our platform, powered by Resolve. And so if once you can start to take that credit checking, that net terms management, that chasing, as you just said, and that reconciliation, and you can do it under the hood and power your own net terms, especially in the case where there's there's increasingly B2B marketplaces or e-commerce, mm-hmm. uh, the trend of e-commerce is rapidly picking up in B2B purchasing, where you might want to have a B2B checkout where you're offering multiple payment terms and you want to embed components of this very complicated B2B purchasing and procurement process, but in a digital or online format. And so by enabling the, whether it's the chasing features, because you don't want to play the collections officer, or yeah. it's more of the credit offering components up at the front of the process, being able to embed that in the context of these relationships is also incredibly important. Yeah. Now, Chris, as we start to wind down our time, I, I want to ask you, this is a traditional part of the Sourcing Hero podcast. Regular listeners tell me all the time that this is the part of every conversation they most look forward to. So you get the choice of answering one of two questions. So I'll give you your two options and then you can pick one and then we'll we'll hear what you have to say. I would love to know from you either, what does the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you? Or an alternate sort of broader question, what do you think heroism looks like in a business context? Mm, yeah, that's a, 
That's a fascinating question. I, I think about heroes as those that take a principled stand for what they believe in. So I'll take the, the second one. So what is heroes in a business context? Um, at least in our world, right, th- with the rise of technology and automation, I think the temptation is to have the technology be front and center and that transactionality to maybe overshadow the relationality, which in B2B and sourcing, I think relationships are actually pretty primary. You can't really background yes. them. So what we found is at least our product and the design team, I, I think they've been heroic in this sense, um, is that they've found a way to marry that technology and automation with that relationality, right? And I think a lot of our customers, the merchants and buyers really appreciate the fact that it's not just, here's a automated B2B transaction for payments that, cool, the humans like don't matter anymore. But in fact, it makes those relationships even more front and center. And it takes all that friction that's frustrating out of the picture. And so to design that way where relationships as a core principle are, you know, the, the, the main thing as opposed to the sort of obfuscated or secondary mm-hmm. thing, I think does take not just a lot of ingenuity, but I think takes courage to, to push that kind of human-centered design, right? Where I think the, the overarching design principle for a lot of technology is, uh, yeah, humans are sort of not, not the most important piece. So anyway, so that, that we've had a number of conversations. I think there's been a lot of courage and heroism from our design team. And I think we've had that validated by many of our customers saying, thank you for making these B2B transactions, not just more seamless, but more human. And uh, they've been able to similarly, because that's their philosophy, they've been able to act as heroes within their own business context, be able to relate to more of their uh, business buyers as humans, even while doing more business with them. So that, that to me, this kind of uh, principled stand around human design in the face of pressures for technology to kind of remove humans from the equation has been something I've been really enjoyed watching from, from my seat. Well, and if you can create a solution that both is a hero to people and also allows them to become heroes to others, um, that's the kind of scale that we need in business. So I think that's 100%. a, that's a fantastic response. Um, Chris, for people that have joined us today and that don't happen to know you, what would be the best way for them to reach out, to connect, to get in touch with you? Yeah, we're at uh, resolvepay.com online and we're, you know, our, we're on LinkedIn and other social channels. And then uh, folks can feel free to reach out to me directly. Uh, I'm chris at resolvepay.com. That is excellent. Well, Chris, I so appreciate your time and I'm glad that you were able to be with me here on The Sourcing Hero today. Great to be with you as well. Thanks so much, Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for The Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.